Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and wherever you are and however you are listening to this episode of Leadership Bites, it is an absolute privilege to have you listening to us today. On this episode, I have Jamil Qureshi. Now, Jamil is somebody who I've been following for some time with a little bit of starry-eyed admiration, if I'm being honest. Jamil's just one of those characters that is constantly delivering keynote speeches and is talking to people on a global scale. So, of course, that took my attention. There are a lot of people in the world today professing to be the leading practitioner of their area. There's lots of people in the world who are trying to make out that they are the number one speaker or they are fantastically busy. The thing about Jamil is he actually is fantastically busy. He is constantly speaking in the UK, globally, and has a phenomenal, phenomenal reputation. I believe he is one of, if not the most booked speaker for some of the UK's leading bureaus, literally year on year. So, Jamil's background is one of psychology. He's been somebody who was actually the first ever official psychologist to work with the European Ryder Cup team, captained by Ian Woosnam. He has worked with some 22 golfers in the top 50. He's been ranked amongst the most influential figures in British sport in 2009, etc. So this is an individual who really has got the eyes and ears of those who want to see output and they want to see performance. He speaks to Coca-Cola, to Hewlett-Packard, to lots of organizations who seek his insights and input. So I was, as well, as you may imagine, I was really looking forward to having the conversation. Now, the thing with Jamil is that sometimes when you speak to somebody, you get a sense that they're very capable, they know their stuff, they are highly read, highly knowledgeable, and it is absolutely worth listening to them purely because of the knowledge base that they bring. And that's definitely true with Jamil. There's an and with Jamil as well, which really struck me. He's incredibly engaging. There's a natural And I don't almost know what the word is, but maybe that's just it. There's a naturalness about him. He isn't presenting himself to the world as inverted commas, a professional. He's not got a caricature of overly demonstrating his skill and his knowledge. He just is present in the conversation. We were able to have a really natural conversation, sometimes when... I am talking to guests on the show. It feels a little bit like I'm running an interview because they don't necessarily volunteer information unless they get a direct question. With Jamil, it was, first of all, we were laughing before we even started the show. And that was with me, with him, somebody who we'd never met before. But he is one of those people that you instinctively have that connection with he's probably one of those people that if you said I didn't like Jamil then it's probably more about you than it is about him because he comes at it from a position of wanting to engage and 
wanting to be curious and not wanting to share because he is the font of knowledge, but because he wants to have a conversation with you. And we may agree or disagree, may change his mind, he may not, he might reinforce his position, he might reinforce yours, but he wants the conversation. So I loved it. I was really taken with him. I was really impressed by him. One of the few times, there's been a few recently, and Jamil was one of those people that I just thought, wow, you know, if I could have access to more conversations with you, I'd be better for it. But on that note, enjoy the episode. Welcome to Leadership Bites with myself, your host, Guy Bloom. This is a leadership podcast where I have conversations with colleagues, I chat with guests, and sometimes they'll be just me talking. You can connect with me at livingbrave.com, and when you enjoy the episode, subscribe and please tell everyone. So, Jamil, fantastic to have you on this episode of Leadership Bites. Thank you for inviting me, guys. Pleasure to be here. Well, this is actually my absolute pleasure because I've been quasi-stalking you from a distance on LinkedIn, seeing the great things that you do. So um, from that point of view, I'm probably more excited to have you on than you are to be on, but it's great to have you here. I'm sure that's not true. It's a meeting of great minds. That's what we'll tell everyone. Okay, I'm I'm buying into that. (laughs) So I've done a little intro just at the start of the episode just to say who you are, but just for people that haven't come across you it's great i think just to hear the the who you are and what are you known for and i think you know it'd be great just to hear that from you uh, well i'm a performance coach and psychologist uh, i'm very lucky i get a chance to work with some very good sports teams some very good business teams uh, you know, when the world is normal i would travel around the world and hopefully um work with teams to um change their thinking to change their doing that's what I would say. I think the only way in which you change your behaviours is to change your thoughts. And so I guess what I would do more than anything else is help people change their mind. So get people to create a new perspective to allow them to create new possibilities and new opportunities. So um, as a performance consultant and performance coach, it's all about um, trying to find out what people do and then help them to do it better. And the way in which I help them to do it better was to uh, help them to think in a new or different way um, to optimize their talent. That's really uh, that's really where I spe- spent my time and where I spend my time now. I don't do it on stage and I don't do it in rooms at home this year. I do it in front of a computer. <laughs> <laughs> the new paradigm that we all we all live in. I've got to admit, the variety of my work, guys, has been substantially better. I've been doing sort of like different types of work this year, but the variety mm. of my location has been the issue. So uh, it is worth noting, and I think you're almost... Some somehow playing it down a little bit that I one of the reasons that I reached out to you is because of the prolific nature I think of your um, your output in terms of just being a, a, a speaker and it would be maybe just valuable just to hear you know pre-COVID just to give a sense of the line of sight you had because I think we are often the exposure that we get and you know how how much work were you doing and where were you doing it yeah, so, I mean, I guess the last eight years or so, um, and you're right, actually, I mean, how I describe myself is probably not necessarily true. And the reason why was that you know, I ended up sort of speaking about my work more than doing it. So um, so literally over the last eight years or so, um, you know how it is. You look at your diary one day and you sort of turn around and think, oh, I'm, I'm a guest speaker. That's what I seem to be filling my time with. So I was speaking um, three or four days a week um, anywhere in the world. I was um, on average abroad twice a week. Um, and I speak for I speak for anyone who'd have me. So it was a sales kickoff. It was a all staff conference, customer day. 
Um, and my nat natural habitat actually is, is is actually on stage. So, you know, I quite like being on stage with a few hundred people in front of me. Um, I use a flip chart. I don't use um, PowerPoint. I noticed that. I tend to scribble on a flight flip chart. It's just how my brain works, that's all. Mm. And um, um, and so I really I spent the last eight years or so um, doing my work and actually working in teams one day a week. Um, the other three or four days a week, I was actually sort of talking about my work, um, sharing some insights and practical takeaways at um, something which, um, I guess, sort of speeches which I call content rich. I try to get it across a lot really at a short amount of time to hopefully enable people to um, shift their perspectives. So even in half an hour or an hour of talking and um, speaking on stage, you know, I'm just hoping that people move into a new space at, um, in regard to their mindset to allow them to go back into their work and back into their world and, and perhaps approach some of those tasks differently. And how did you get when I say to be you, um, you know, that's always the, you know, but we get to a point in life, but there was a route to getting there. And I often find that the journey to the, who we are today is almost as interesting as what it is that we're talking about, because it feeds the validity of, well, you know, I can talk about that because of, you know, that, that time I had, you know, in the Congo with the pygmies or whatever it was, yeah. but it'd be, you know, how did, how did you get to be you? <laughs> Without yeah. that being too vague a question. No, no, that's good. That's no, no, that's a good question. Um, it's it's a tricky one to answer, to be honest, because it's definitely a road less travelled. <laughs> so, um, you know, I sort of, sort of you know, turned around one day and realised I was here, and um, you know, it wasn't. There was no great plan. I wish I could tell you about you know the, the superb business planning that I had and you know the route that I followed, um, you know, and all the sort of good fortune along the way. But but it's been a series of ups and downs, really. I'll give you a potted history, mate. That what you know what happened was that you know I, I, my interest has always been psychology. Um, I used to play cricket at home and enjoyed playing cricket and that was sort of taken off as a career for me but um, but I was technically good as a cricketer but my, my mindset was bad so um, so I was, I was particularly bad in regard to my attitude so I always, I've always had a poor attitude <laughs> and then what happened was that someone said that you should see a psychologist so I saw a psychologist and took me further away from cricket um, and actually into the space of psychology, I became really interested in it. So I then um, uh, did a, a, uh, my, my, my time spent sort of studying was business and marketing. Um, I did that and came out in a variety of roles in, in, in business development and you know, commercial roles in a variety of places. Um, I wasn't happy doing it. And, uh, you know, I never sort of really fitted into that corporate world. Um, so I gave it all up to become a magician, much to my parents' dismay. Um, and, of course you uh, did. And, yeah, yeah. And, um, and, and, so, um, and so I went to the Congo with a pack of cards. No, <laughs> that bit's not true. That'd and be so, so great if it was, though. Wouldn't it? So, so what happened was that I decided to, but the magic that I was really interested in was psychological magic. Do you know, like magic like sort of Darren Brown and yeah. Keith Barry. So because I was interested in psychology. So um, you know, I went to a pub in Newark and did a sort of series of sort of you know, mind reading and psychology talks to you know fifty drunk people who don't want to see it, um, and I had really good fortune from there. You know, I met a few people who um, had some contacts in television. I met a few people in turn from that who had some contacts in sport. Um, and one day, a golfer turned around and asked me, you know, whether you know I could help him, and I said yes. And um, I went off and read another book on psychology and came back with some more techniques. And, um, and he nearly won the Open, so, so he did very well. And, um, and professional sport is a really small world. So because he did well, it, it, I 
I, yeah, I personally got press on, I, mm. um, I got I mentioned in the press, the national press, the Telegraph and Mail and things, because he was very generous with the credit. Um, and so other golfers came and joined me. And within a year, I was working with some of the best golfers on the planet. The golfers know all the sort of premiership footballers and international cricketers. I started working with them. Um, and then business people said to me that, um, look, um, you know, you are working with, you know, some of the best golfers around. Can you come and have a chat to my sales team? about what they do in regard to performance. Um, and so I started doing some talks with corporate audiences. And, and you know how it is with your career. You know, once you start doing some talks, if you do them well, you'll be asked to do more. Um, and that's exactly what happened to me. In terms mm. that people took me away from sport and into that area of business again, so it came full circle. Because um, people wanted to find out, you know, what, what do elite sports people do? Um, and because I'm more comfortable talking to business audiences than I am actually to sports people anyway, and I, am, I made a very natural and very easy transition to be spending 95% of my time now um, helping business audiences you know, achieve performance through talking about culture, transformation, uh, leadership, you know, whatever it might be, which is relevant to the current day. Mm. So I, I remember getting your book, The Mind Coach, with a, a gorgeous picture of you on the front, looking <laughs> incredibly wise. And um, so that was the be the person you really want to be. Um, yeah. On, on, it's not on. a great book. I wish you didn't plug that. It's not a good book at all. No, well, let's, let's, book... let's delete that uh, from, from our consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, I read that in 2008. And it's amazing, actually, because one of the things which, um, you know, I genuinely believe is that, um, you know, doing psychology or performance coaching is, is a bit like um, learning to swim by reading a book. Um, you know, it, it just doesn't happen. So 2008, I don't think I was particularly advanced in regard to psychology. And, uh, you know, here we are you know, a number of years later. And I think the more you do of it, the better you get. Yeah. Um, I think yeah. it's the same with anything. Yeah. I think that's the same with speaking on stage, you know, just with, you know, working with individuals. I, uh, I had Dave Ulrich, um, who's the uh, well-known HR guru on the podcast. And he said, you know, um, you know, people talk to me about the Ulrich model. He said, but, you know, that was one of the first things I do. <laughs> I did. I've, mo I've moved on. <laughs> you, yeah. know? And, yeah. uh, you know, I don't want to be known for the first thing that I ever said. Yeah, and that's how I feel about the mind coach. <laughs> but you know, um, but you know, because what I said in it wasn't very good. But um, but you know what, business is a game of continual adjustment, isn't it? You know, we need to learn to dance on a shifting carpet, hmm. not see the rug being pulled. Well, do you know rug. what? Actually, having something out that you've moved out on and you've moved up on is a way of actually role modelling what development is. You know, um, yeah, it, it was fine at the time, but I've moved on as a culture should and. So it's, in, it's indicative of your craft, probably. Well, yeah, I always say that you can't trust the future to anyone who champions the path. That, you know, the future demands us to be different, doesn't it? You know, part of that difference, be it in a leadership team, or be it a company, or be it an individual, mm. you know, is to reimagine, repurpose, reinvent, um, to be future relevant and future literate. And you look at the time that we are in now, and I can guarantee you that all the companies I'm working with at the moment are the ones who are struggling the most, you know, are the ones who are trying to get back to normal. Um, mm. The ones who are flourishing are the ones who are moving forwards into this space of reimagining and repurposing and you know, starting to see the beauty in the chaos. Um, because once we start to realise that, you know, there is always opportunity, and uh, it's the perspective that we have which allows us to, you know, gain sight of that, um, then I think that we can become more agile and open-minded, you know, in the way in which we construct our organisations and construct our thinking to then allow us to deploy resource to opportunity in the most relevant way.
you know, the new normal isn't the past in some respects. No, I mean, you know, and I think that, you know, there's no, I mean, it's funny if people say something new normal, there's nothing normal about it, you know, it's totally mm. abnormal. And, um, you know, I think it's the new now, you know, so and this time mm. next year, there'll be another new now, which will be different to this. You know, I'm convinced of it. I saw a, one of my favourite memes that went around was, you know, that job that they told you for 20 years that you couldn't do from home? You know, it turns out yeah. you can. Yeah. And yeah. it's that kind of um, what, what kept us in the office or what kept us in that, well, because, you know, we had a, we had a tunnel on what right looked like. Yes, that's right. And I think the assumptions that our businesses have been built upon, you know, have been roundly challenged. You know, so you know, I always say it's better to be disrupted from the inside than it is to be disrupted from the outside. And so, you know, this is these are the thoughts that we should have been having, the, the challenges that we should have been, the conflict that we should have been having within our businesses anyway. And um, so we're ready for change. And um, so, you know, I agree with you. I think that um, it is possible to do many things in a different way now. The only thing I'll say, though, um, Guy, is that um, uh, what's really interesting is that you know, I think that people are a little bit bored of these virtual platforms. I'm seeing it at, uh, all the time, Teams, Zoom, WebEx. Mm. When, these first thing, when these things first came out, um, people said it's the end of conferences. No one's going to fly anywhere. And, you know, no one's going to do anything when these things first arrived. Um, but that wasn't the case. You know, we still continued to meet, even though we had Zoom and yeah. Teams and WebEx. Um, and so I do think that... Um, you know, we'll, as a social species, we'll, we will want that contact again. You know, we will want um, serendipity. You know, we'll want the chance encounters. And I don't know what the lost opportunity cost is for organizations at the moment, but, um, but it's certainly um, a two-dimensional way of working. And I think that we need a three-dimensional interaction to allow us to be successful. Yeah, it's, it's you know, like dig digital books will kill the paperback or something, you know, whatever that is. And, and, I, and I think there is the chance conversation the um the, the, we're, we're talking about nothing but actually we just generate an idea in conversation on the way to the conference you know all these little things or i just feel a little bit more comfortable with you and i'm just more likely to want to do something with you yeah. you know all these little things don't necessarily come out of it's not that this can't enable but it, it is a different thing Definitely. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's absolutely right. I'm always, I always say that, you know, it's, it's, it's great being a guest speaker at a conference and I hope that it's useful to people. Um, but that time spent over the coffee machine complaining about the volibonds, you know, or, you know, that time waiting in the foyer at, um, if you're going to get your breakfast, you know, is invaluable. Mm. Um, and so many teams come together for a day or two days in Barcelona or Madrid or Dubai, wherever in the world. Um, and everyone talks about the value of the connectivity just as much as they do the agenda. Um, and I do think, I mean, I don't know about you, mate, but, you know, the more that we've been asked to stay apart, the more I've realised how much we need to be together. Um, and I think that, you know, no one, knows, no one knows the answers. So therefore, what we need to do is to be more connected. We need to play into people more. So the more inclusive, collaborative and connected, the more knowledge sharing that goes on, the more successful we can be because we'll make more sense of the world. Hmm. Um, and so paradoxically, you know, there's a greater call, I believe, and certainly in the teams that I'm working with for greater connectivity. Hmm. We need to connect more than we ever have done because safety in numbers no, let's make sure that we're sharing knowledge and understanding the world by hearing the diverse opinions and experiences of other people. Yeah, I've got a little phrase there, which is, you know, the, the tribe needs the campfire. Mm. And, you know, I firmly believe in that, which is that that capacity to come together and share. 
and yeah. to just be in each other's presence at a human level. There's just that sense of I am not alone, which when you were talking about resilience and well-being, I think is 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 that just that sense of not being alone, let alone sh sharing information and all the value that comes out of it. I think there's a base need for um, contact. Totally agree. I thought you're going into another Congo story then with your campfire. Well, I, I, I've, I've got a bias. We can but, see do you know, <laughs> but do you know, um, you're determined to get us to Africa in this podcast, aren't you? Determined. We're getting but, um, there. But do you know, um, um, but yeah, no, I agree. And I think it's a really good point that, you know, I think from a performance perspective, you know, let's, let's drive change and transformation by being connected. Um, but at a more, you know, a more, um, you know, more human level, at, um, that you're absolutely right, that, you know, resilience comes from being part of something. Um, bravery and confidence comes from, is easier as part of a team. Mm -hmm. um, you, know, all, you know, all of these things, that are, you know, are, are made possible by the idea of collaboration, connectivity and cooperation. It's, what we've, it's how we've built humankind society and civilization today so you're absolutely right the, the 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 benefits of connectivity are substantial have you noticed a um has there been a shift you know I mean, when covid started i was almost oh you know let's not make it about covid because that, that'll get old pretty quick but you know it's been going on long enough has the have people wanted to hear different things from you in this space or is it, no, it's the same essence, but it's now just aimed into a different context. It's a very good question, isn't it? Um, yeah. Do you know, I think that, I think I'll answer that in two ways that I'm still doing the same thing with a different slant. So, you know, I'm talking about productivity, I'm talking about motivation, morale, uh, connectivity, team dynamic, um, so leadership in a new context, people strategies in a new context. So, you know, all, all of those things are things which I've talked about previously, you know, anything to do with getting the most out of ourselves by using our mind. That's why I cover. Um, I've just been doing it with a sort of different perspective because the world's changed. But the only thing that, um, um, that I've been talking about, which is different to what I usually talk about, is some of the macro environmental changes. So people are asking me about, um, you work with a lot of companies in a variety of sectors. So how do you see this playing out? Talking about more about the economy, about governance and about the future of work. So they're conversations that I didn't really have before. People are more interested in, in their team and themselves. Um, but I get more and more questions based upon um, you know, the experience that I'm having with the variety of companies that I'm working with. Um, and how they see things playing out sort of economically uh, or um, in regard to sort of, you know, the future of business. So I imagine that contextually for a business, things have changed. But when it comes to the people that are in those businesses, do you think that's still, in essence, the same message? Well, do you know, I mean, I, I think what's really interesting is that um, you, we've all had sort of eight or nine months to sit at home alone with our soul. Mm. Thinking about why we go to work, um, where we work, who we work with, what, we do, what do we do and who do we do it for? And then whilst we've done that, we've seen the, the world change dramatically. So the assumptions that our world has been built upon have been roundly challenged. What we thought was valuable is no longer valuable. You know, what we didn't value, we're finding out is incredibly valuable. So I think perspectives are shifting all the time. So um, if you look at um, the way in which we sort of built our economies, you know, you look at the Marshall Plan after the war, at, um, you know, based upon sort of competition, economies of um, scale, um, and, you know, 
you can see how we've almost ended up here. And the problem that we've got is that, you know, we had a sort of rusty, we had a sort of rickety old house which burnt down. Um, you know, why should we go back and build a rickety old house? You know, it's a time to construct something which is more sustainable, which is more sustainably successful. So I think that many of us that are thinking about, you know, how do we want to express our talent in a world which has now changed? So I was actually with a bank the other day and the other bank was talking about, I'm having conversations with bankers I've never heard before. So, you know, I had someone, someone say to me you know, a, um, a, a question like, you know, about getting the economy moving. And someone else interjected to say, well, look, we need to almost decide what the economy is for. Um, and it's a really good question because, you know, these are, these are questions that we don't necessarily hear because we're trying to satisfy shareholder value. But I think there's a new level of bravery in the way in which people might organise their careers and home life. There's a new level of bravery in which people might want to construct new teams and new businesses which play into sectors in a different way to construct a world which is different to the one that we lived in before. So I think this is where it gets into, you know, what I call sort of big pants territory, which is <laughs> that, uh, yeah, it's like when I see people sort of talk about they run courses on leadership with love. I'm like, yeah, I get you. Uh, at a kind of, you know, at a, at a level of, wouldn't it be good if we could all share? <clears throat> you know, I, I, I'm kind of with that. So that, that referencing that redefining of the world and you know, why would we rebuild what we just what we just had that didn't work but then we've also got players in the global market who are playing a different game yes and that's um, exactly the problem you're absolutely right yeah. so you one percent of the world's um well and one percent of the world's population uh, own 50 percent of the wealth so, so the status quo is but we've also got countries you know, let's Absolutely. just, you know, like a China, for example, yeah. that are, you know, the politically based there, they front as a commercial entity, but they yes. have an agenda that I would say probably is they are generational in their strategy and we're cyclical in, in yeah. ours, you know, and it's a very, it's almost like we're playing drafts and they're playing chess. <clears throat> yeah. And I think, but, 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 you know, I mean, you know, I'd like to think that we're going to sort of think a bit more systemically, but, um, you know, and globally come together more. You know, what we've seen, um, you know, without getting too political on, on, on the podcast, that, you know, what we've seen, we've seen, we've seen authoritarianism, not, not authoritarianism, not play out very well. Mm -hmm. You see what's happening in places like, you know, Hungary, America, you know, and even in this country, but, um, yeah. you know, populism doesn't deal with this particularly well. And, um, yeah, so, um, so we need a more collaborative approach to solving the world's problems. And I think that, you know, for us to see things as them and us, and, um, you know, China will do well out of this, in terms of America, you know, is failing. Um, it's a global problem needing a global solution, you know, such as, you know, along the likes of climate change, you know, which will be a greater problem than COVID-19 for humanity so you know i would like to think uh, you know if you ask me optimistically i'd like to think that there's going to be some better realization that we went through a um a intellectual crisis in 2008 um, and this is an existential crisis this is different and um so maybe people's hearts and minds that um, you know, may allow us to play into each other and become more connected you know, in a way which is different to what we did before. So you ask me optimistically, you know, I'd like to think that let's not look at different geographies or countries doing badly or well out of this. How do we, um, as a species, um, come together to solve some of the world's biggest problems which affects us all? Mm -hmm. If you ask me on a pessimistic day, and, um, you know, I would probably say that, um, you know, the 
problem that we've got is that exactly as you've described it, you know, that people um, are involving themselves in nationalism. And, um, and so, you know, therefore, believing that the way forward is to look after our own. And, um, but, you know, I don't see that as a way way that we can play out of this from an economic perspective or even from a um, healthcare and public policy perspective. And I think that's where I find it very interesting with dealing and working with senior teams on, on a personal level, which is that um, angst between what they believe to be right as a human being and what they feel themselves being pushed to do in the context of either their job security or an earnout or whatever it may be. And it's it's very interesting just to see good people very often, I won't go so far as to say doing bad things, but there's a very fine line between being motivated, bullish, and a bully. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, high motivation is in that kind of, depending on who's experiencing it, is that kind of bullish area of, you know, let's go, go, go. But go, go, go on a continual basis with no time for self becomes a kind of a bullying environment, even though I'm not being technically punched in the face. Yeah. And and I and I think I I wonder where your message, uh, or maybe that this is because I don't understand it well enough, but when we talk and I talk to people about personal resilience and personal mindsets, it's that yes guy, but have you met my boss? Or yes, guy, but that's fine. But you understand what's happening within this company, or yeah. and and so I think often there's a a desire for the by the human to want to do things, but the collective cultural push doesn't necessarily marry up to what's being asked, which I then think makes people even more anxious because they see the the um, the hypocrisy. Yes. You're absolutely right, and, uh, and, and you've hit it on the head, that the, the 85% of people who have a job don't like it. It's a statistic that plays out time and time again. If you have a look, if, um, 85% of people who have a job you know, aren't satisfied with it. And I honestly believe the reason why they're not satisfied with it um, is because it probably compromises their thinking. So it's contradictory. And, you know, we get involved in organizations and get involved in teams that don't necessarily um, fit with who we are. So you know, I always say that being a good leader or being a good colleague is seeking, uh, not seeking to impress, but seeking to express, you know, to be ourselves in the context of the workplace. Um, and you know, I think very few places are like that. You know, this is the problem. So many companies have, I don't know, um, mission statements, but very few are on a mission. You know, they don't galvanize at, um, you know, a common purpose amongst some people who are passionate about where that organization is heading because it fits with their values. There are a few companies who are doing it and doing it well, mm -hmm. at, um, but the majority don't. And I think that um, the reason why people are unhappy in their role is because it's contradictory to their values. Mm -hmm. What happens then is they become stressed and anxious, makes them more susceptible to the virus. So therefore, you know, there needs to be a reset with this world. We need to reset the way in which we look at health and well-being, and we look at public policies to do with creating healthier environments for all the yeah. societies and communities to allow us to um, product, be more productive and successful in a more well-rounded manner. Boom. I do like that phrase, which I may stick on a T-shirt, which is, you know, you may have a, a mission statement, but you are you on a mission? 
you know, I mean, that's a, you know that's what, a, you know what? when I was when I was being provocative when I used to stand on stage at, in the good old days at, um, and I have a few hundred people in front of me, depending on what I was talking about, I was talking about culture or something. I'd sometimes you'd like this one, the all sense of humor. At, um, I would um, I would I would say to um, the audience, um, um, do you have do you have values on a wall? Put your hand up. You got values on a wall. So it's like four or five hundred people from a particular company, whoever it might be, at, um, and uh, obviously. 400 people put their hands up and so i said okay well look can i just ask you a quick question um how many of you drive into work every morning thinking i cannot wait to express my company values today and they all look down including the board in the front row all look down like this sort of sniggering i said well look i've been i've been a bit mischievous because you probably don't do that however because, <laughs> you, you probably don't do that because you're driving into work thinking i cannot wait to increase shareholder value today and they all look even more embarrassed then, <laughs> including the board. And, um, and I think yeah, we, we don't go to work to increase shareholder value. But, um, we don't feel excited and engaged when we write out our to-do list. And um, you know, we don't go to work to you know express the values which you know someone has pinned up in our you know in our office. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we go to work to create meaning. And I think that organisations and um, organisations and leaders you know go wrong when they focus upon what they can have rather than what they can be. And I think that, you know, let's start to you know, construct um, economies and businesses and teams and roles with some real meaning and purpose. Let's realize our contribution. You know, let's understand what we enable to take place in the world as a result of, you know, expressing ourselves. And I think that if we can um, get into a idea or notion that um, culture at, um, is our true differentiator and our only sustainable competitive advantage is to learn faster and better than our competitors in a way in which we construct that culture. Um, I think that companies could do very well in the chaos mm-hmm. which you know, we're in at the moment. People often talk about executive education, but I've got this kind of thing, which is more like executive growth, which is from your yeah. point of view, you know, right, the, the numbers, the financials, whatever, you know, you're either at a level of competence to understand it or, or, or you're not. We've, we've then got that, um, there's something about space, how people find the space for themselves, how they find the space for others, and 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 maybe how they find maybe the, that bravery, and it probably is at a senior level, to say not so much when is enough enough, but how how hard do we need to push? Because you know that that Gantt chart with we're chasing all of these rabbits at the same time. Yes. Um, do we? Does that have to be done? Um, and and I think that's that's the work I'm very interested in at that most senior level because actually yeah. you know you're, you're setting the tone, right? Yeah, particularly at the moment. So um, I always say that the issues that a company will face are pretty unimportant. Um, the ability to form a team that can deal with those issues is essential. Mm. So you know, we can't predict the future. I don't, you know, the only thing that we can predict is that there'll be a level of uncertainty, complexity, and, and, and unpredictability. So you know, let's have a look at our thinking and strategies and plans, you know, which allow us to, um, to embrace the idea that first things first, second things never. Let's focus upon what's really important, where we have impact, where we create value, now, what's meaningful? 
Um, and let's start to direct our energy in that particular direction. The reason why um, co- um, football teams, and um, so it doesn't work in premiership football teams, and, uh, and the reason why they can play brilliantly together for 90 minutes, these teams, you think about it, you've got a team of 11 people, they don't speak the same language, that, uh, so some people in a premiership football team won't even speak English, and so they don't speak the same language, they don't have the same background, they don't have the same religion, uh, they play in different positions, uh, different experiences, uh, different times in their career, and they play brilliantly together for 90 minutes. But, uh, so why do they do that and how do they do that? One of the reasons why is the simplicity of winning. They, um, everyone understands what winning looks like. There's a real clarity, there's simplicity. This is what we, we all know how to win a game of football. And we all know how to commit to a particular way of being and doing, which enables us to win. In business, it's so much more complicated. I bet you see it all the time. Uh, you know, there's, there's metrics which suggest we're winning in this area. And some will say, well, I know, but we're losing in that one. And tell me, yeah, I know, but that's because of this. Have a look at here. And it almost seems that we're dotting around, not really no plate spinning, but, um, trying to make sure that this is successful and that's successful so we can say that we're winning in that moment. One of the things I talk about is unified purpose. And, you know, if we say that kicking the ball into the back of the net is in essence a unified purpose, maybe... But there's what I actually find is at senior teams is that in startups, it can be a lot easier. But as the organization gets bigger, people and this is an an interesting statement for me, but people almost don't mind too much if the company doesn't do that well, as long as they do. So if I do well and the company does well enough to keep going, I will be kept on (laughs) because I did quite well. And it's a, it's a, no, that's, that's a, I don't mean that of everybody, but I see a lot of that where they do know what the, the end game is of sorts. They, they understand what it is, but actually there's a human need for self-protection that yes. actually gets in the way of the, the ideal. Yeah. So that, that that's, uh, and that's very true. And, um, uh, and again, you're absolutely right that the reason for it is protectionism. So maintaining a position, committing to neutrality. If I do my bit, I'm all right. So um, I'll give you an example of it, you know, where I see it. Um, uh, here's an example for you. Uh, if knowledge is valuable in an organization, and, uh, and I was part of that organization, why would I share my knowledge with other people? You know, if I share my knowledge with you and you know it too, all I've done is devalue me. I'll keep it to myself. Um, so we get these fiefdoms of knowledge. And, uh, you know, we get these people who drive their own areas, drive their own geography, drive their own clients, drive their own accounts. Um, because one, that's how they're measured. And, uh, I'm performing well. Look at my KPIs. And, uh, I'm doing all right. And, um, so we need more unifying purpose and unifying metrics. And um, so, um, so I'm doing well. Um, and whilst I'm doing well, I can wipe my brow. And, um, and maybe if I've got some time, play into the other guys to see if we can do it together. And you're absolutely right that it's this protectionism, looking after me, making sure I'm safe. Uh, you'll probably see it even more now than, than any other time, you know, this year. I don't want to lose this account, don't want to lose this client, don't want to lose my job, don't want to lose the team, don't lose my status, reputation. And so, in a way, there must be so many new ideas this year, which are at the mercy of what people don't want to lose. So it's been motivated by what we're seeking to achieve and create. So many people are motivated by what they're seeking to avoid. They don't necessarily look up to see the opportunity. Mm-hmm. So you know, I think that I totally understand the consideration of having to hunker down. Let's batten down the hatches. Let's look after stuff. I get that. 
Um, but I just wonder whether if it's too much of a consideration, it becomes a motivation. And so therefore we miss out on the new perspectives which could create these new possibilities. Mm. New ideas are so fragile. Someone suggests a new idea, someone, um, and someone raises an eyebrow. The, eyebrow, the, the idea's dead. Yeah, someone suggests a new idea, someone smirks. The idea's dead, let alone when, and when the new idea is the victim of a discussion based upon mm. How much is it going to cost us if it doesn't work? I think the fragility of a new idea is a very good metaphor, or a very good, you know, it, it is delicate. Um, yes. I think that's 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 very true. And, and then it gets uh, suggested and, into an environment where people say, yeah, it's a nice idea, but if it doesn't work, how much is this going to cost? Margin, market share, revenue, income. Mm. But, um, what are we going to lose with this one? And I like it, but what are we going to lose? Let's consider mm. this wisely. The new idea is dead because people are starting to talk about it in a negative way and explore all the reasons why it won't work. And you'll always find reasons why things don't work. So in the limited time that I have with you, because, you know, with, with a beverage and a, and a Chinese takeaway, I could I could keep on at this into the into the wee hours and maybe some West African cuisine. <laughs> so you're not going to let it go, are you? <laughs> so, so there is that. So for me, what is uh, I've got two kind of things I want to ask you. One, one is in the time that we've got, which is, was there a moment in your life where you had a a book, a, a conversation with somebody, and an observation where you really thought that was one of the the real shifts, not in me wanting to do that career, but in my learning, in my understanding of my topic? Um, I think, yeah, do you know what? I've, I've had a few. And, um, I think because, because I'm always after an epiphany. <laughs> I'm always trying to find one. I need a then, paradigm shift by a Wednesday or I'm not happy, man. <laughs> exactly right. That's exactly right. So, um, so, yeah, so, yeah, probably had a few, um, really. I think it's funny because someone once said to me that pride can be a very expensive thing. Um, it's one of the best pieces of advice I've ever had. Um, mm. I see it in business all the time, you know, where people's ego and drives them to champion something which is failing. And then when they have good luck and they confuse it for genius. And, um, you know, and, um, you know, so many times that, you know, we, we, you know, we drive an agenda, you know, because, you know, we'll lose face not to. You know, we want to have our say. Um, and I was probably told that as a teenager. That, you know, pride can be a very expensive thing. Um, and I think it's very true. And then the other piece of advice that, you know, I had is that someone once said to me that life is about timing. Uh, and when you're young, I don't think you realize that. You know, and the older you get, and, um, so, um, you know, men of a certain age like us, <laughs> that um, that will. Um, I look um, good for seventy-four. <laughs> we'll start to realise that it is about timing. That I mean, mm -hmm. I genuinely believe it, and I think mm -hmm. that you know, look at the time that we're in now. I mean, I think we'll look back in five years or ten years' time, um, and there'll be some super successful companies um, mm -hmm. in the next five years or ten years. And I bet you they were born out of this. I bet you. Yeah. So it almost proves that circumstance and situation are not important. Um, you know, what's most important is what we choose to do with it. And I think that, you know, I, I, I realized too late the power of choice. And I think that, you know, we can make great choices rather than um, you look at the circumstance and situation that we're in. I always say that blame looks backwards, responsibility looks forwards. Um, and as soon as you start to take responsibility and, um, and allow the, that to meet great timing, you know, I think that we can really um, do some amazing stuff. 
So before I kind of get into my closing funnel, um, which is now getting relatively well practiced, this is a question that might test you a little bit, but what's the best? Maybe not the best. What's the bit of advice that you're almost most proud of giving somebody? Um, specifically for an individual, or do you mean the advice I give out often? I think, yeah, when you, maybe I think for an individual where you've actually thought, you know what, I actually think that's going to help. <laughs> yeah. Here's the thing for you, and I need to be careful how I word this one, but um, uh, it, it's amazing because I, I'm really, really lucky. I'm very lucky. You know, I've, I've traveled the world working with some amazing people, incredibly successful business people and sports people. Um, and the best psychology I've ever done um, hasn't come from a psychology book. Um, when you're sat in front of a 16, 17-year-old golfer, you know, who mm. earns, you know, a few million quid a year, lives at home with his mum and dad in a two-bedroom house, and, um, you know, and um, he's had a bad day, and he wants to kill himself and kill you. And, um, and, you know, you just say to him, you know, look, stop being an arse, go and practice tomorrow. And, um, it's quite possibly the best advice I've ever hand handed out. You know, is the advice which is, you know, more fatherly and not sort of yeah. you know, or as a best mate it's the sort of thing you say to your best mate which is you know look you've, you've been a, you've been a twat go on, go on yeah. back tomorrow well, there's a, yeah there's something genuinely human in it, yeah right? yeah and i swear to god it's the best that there was a, there was a i'm not going to name the golfer but there's a golfer who was you know languishing at wherever sort of 70th yeah. in the world young kid yeah and you know he won his first tournament in a number of years and um and i promise you the advice i gave him was just stop moaning and go out and win. <laughs> there, was no, there was no technical advice. There's no great psychology behind it. He needed yeah. a kick up the arse. And yeah. He just needed a kick up the arse. He needed a clip round the ear. And, yeah. and so the best advice I've ever given is has literally been that moment of truth. Um, and you'll be amazed actually how, you know, sometimes, you know, with very senior people or, you know, or very wealthy yeah. people, whatever it might be, and, um, you know, sometimes, you know, the ability to look them in the eye, and, um, you know, and risk everything is worth it. And, you know, you just I have a into honest, that fully. Yeah. Yeah, honest conversation, you know, not from mm. a psychologist to a client, not from, you know, a consultant to a CEO, but from one human being to another at um, mm. that says, look, mate, it's more like this than that. I buy into that. And when I try and find people to bring onto my team, my issue isn't their academic intelligence or their what the books they've read, because generally they're smarter than I am and they've read a lot more and they're better qualified. My biggest issue is their ability to stand in front of somebody senior or sit in whatever and just occasionally go, you know, that's bollocks, right? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and for it to be acceptable because it's coming from the heart from somebody that is genuinely sharing and not judging. That's right. And I think, you know, you, have, you do have to build a relationship to have that level of, of honesty. Yeah. So, um, but, you know, that in itself, um, you know, it uh, enables you to have greater optionality. So when you build the relationship yeah. up high, then it gives you the license you know, to have a new level of honesty. Right. And I think that um, there's no substitute for it. I mean, you, know, you can't read that in books. I tell them, you know, you learn it by doing it. Mm, I think actually in terms of one of the greatest skills, I think when I'm looking at leaders is that ability to build the trust, to have the honest conversation, which leads to the moments of humanity where then we're, we're trusted. So I definitely buy into that. Yeah. We, we need to become increasingly human led and technology enabled. You know, we need to increasingly think about, you know, the way in which we can humanize language, you know, to humanize what people do. Hmm. Um, I think that it's an interesting skill for leaders moving forwards. 
So listen, Jamil, I, I want to stay here for the next four or five hours, but I'm relatively sure that you have to go and actually do something. Um, You'll be roasting in that body warmer if you sat there for the next four well, or five actually, hours. Listen, I, I, thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> but I realised that this thing, uh, this top I had on was reacting to the lens and it was sending it a bit is, squiffy. Actually. So I had to quickly put that on. <laughs> Thanks for that. Yeah, no, I'll, be, I'll, be feeling sick. I'll be feeling sick by the end of the hour, actually. So uh, <laughs> no, I'm glad you got the... Uh, no, I, exactly. I thought it's, yeah, it's, right. a, bit, yeah, it's, ooh, it's a bit, bit woo, sick. so I've, yeah. I've shoved it on. So if people want to... I'm, I'm going to put your contact details in the description, but if people want to reach out and engage with you, is it via LinkedIn, your website? What, what's the best way to see... Yeah, I've got my, my details are in a, on a toilet wall in Woking. Um, you were doing so I, um, well up until the last minute, weren't you? And then you blew it. <laughs> but um, but yeah, Jamil underscore Crazy all through LinkedIn. You know, it's fine by me. At um, you know, and obviously my website is jamilcrazy.com. It's always a pleasure to hear from people. Okay, fantastic. Listen, on that note, I'm going to press the stop button. I'm just going to ask you to not go away for a moment, just in case um, there's a crisis. But just for me personally, just thank you so much for coming on on this episode. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. That's it. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please share so others get to hear about us and subscribe so you keep up to date on new episodes. Also visit livingbrave.com if you want to connect with me and find out more about executive coaching, team effectiveness and changing culture. Oh, and of course you can buy my book, Living Brave Leadership on Amazon. So on that note, see you soon.